Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. And you are listening to part two of our three-part series on General John Bell Hood. We ended part one with General Hood having just been placed in command of the Army of Tennessee, having relieved General Johnston, who was almost twice his age. Hood has been given command of this army and tasked with defending Atlanta from General Sherman, whose forces vastly outnumbered him, and Sherman was creeping closer and closer to the gates of Atlanta. So we're going to jump back into Hood's story now. The day after Hood gets his promotion, he was advised by Johnson on the location of the enemy and what their plans were for defending the city of Atlanta. Hood would be opposed by two of his classmates, General McPherson and General Schofield, which we've already talked about, and of course, his West Point instructor, General George Thomas. Can you imagine that? Like, you've been given the biggest assignment of your life, and the army you have to fight against, not only is it against General Sherman, but it's also against somebody who used to teach you and two of your former classmates. It's important to remember that Hood had learned army command, particularly from General Lee, but he learned a style of warfare in which the army commander told the corps commanders what needed to be done, but left it up to them exactly how to accomplish it. So not very micromanagey. No. And this is how Hood kind of gained his recognition throughout the war, because General Lee would tell him what to do, and he would use his men to accomplish something in his own way. Even if it meant losing quite a bit of his men, Hood was willing to engage in combat because those were his orders. Well, the culture was a little bit different in the Army of Tennessee. In this culture, the Army commander had a much more active role, and what they were used to was receiving specific orders of exactly what needed to be done. This wasn't Hood's style. No, plus lots of the people he was commanding were newly promoted as well. So they're probably looking for a little bit stronger leadership on what to do in their new jobs. Yeah, not only would the Army of Tennessee have a brand new commanding officer in General Hood, but many of its core division, brigade, and regimental commanders were learning their roles as well. Many of these guys had recently been promoted. So even though they might have been experienced soldiers, they weren't experienced in the capacity that they would need to have experience for this engagement. Over the first 10 days of his time as an army commander, Hood attempted to do exactly what he said he was going to do, act aggressively, or what he was known to do. He took aggressive action against federal forces at Peachtree Creek, in Atlanta, at Ezra Church, and at Jonesboro. These actions were all Confederate losses, but they did prove that Hood was willing to fight, and they achieved at the very least a delay in Sherman's direct attempt to take over Atlanta. After this, Atlanta is under siege for about a month. After losing all the supply lines into the city, Hood is forced to abandon Atlanta, finally. By September 5th, 1864, Atlanta was in the hands of federal forces under the command of General William Sherman. So the thing Hood had taken over to do, defend Atlanta, he has failed. Yeah. Now, this would have been a difficult task for anybody, but it does seem like Hood is quick to pass blame on to others. In particular... He blamed his loss primarily on General Hardy, who was his most experienced corps commander. And eventually Hardy was transferred elsewhere to be replaced by General Frank Cheatham. So now this is another corps. The most experienced guy in Hood's army is gone. And in late September and October, Hood used the Army of Tennessee to prevent Sherman's forces from getting necessary supplies into Atlanta. 
His thought was that he couldn't attack Sherman in the city directly, but he might be able to draw them out and attack them on open battleground outside the city. But Sherman wasn't really falling for it. And in fact, as, as Hood was doing this, Sherman was formulating plans of his own. As early as October 9th, Sherman was devising his plan for his march to the sea, in which he would march his forces from Atlanta to Savannah, Georgia, destroying anything the Confederate war effort might find useful to use. In a letter to Ulysses S. Grant, Sherman said that it was a physical impossibility to protect the roads now that Hood, Forrest, and Wheeler, and the whole batch of devils, are turned loose without home or habitation. Until we can repopulate Georgia, it is useless to occupy it. But the utter destruction of its roads, houses, and people will cripple the military resources. I will make this march and make Georgia howl. Which is a pretty famous quote from Sherman. Yes, and I mean, his march to the sea becomes pretty infamous in the whole Civil right. War Civil War era. But and interesting to know that it's a direct response to Hood as well. Exactly. During this time, Hood demanded the surrender of multiple federal garrisons. He took over the federal garrison at Dalton, Georgia, and captured 751 federal prisoners, which included many African-American troops. The white soldiers were taken as prisoners, but the African-Americans were stripped of their shoes and clothing and put to work or sent to their former masters. We talked about this kind of in our earlier episode, Fighting to be Free. In preparation for his march to the sea, Sherman dispatched General Thomas to Nashville to command the federal forces in Tennessee, along with two corps under the command of General John M. Schofield. And by early November, Hood was formulating a new plan. He decided to not pursue Sherman's march across Georgia. Instead, he would turn his attention away from Atlanta and head towards Nashville. Tennessee was a Confederate state. But Nashville fell to northern forces in February of 1862. It was actually the first Confederate state capital to fall back to the north, and it remained under federal control for the duration of the war. Hood decided that if he could retake Nashville, he could accomplish a couple of different things. Number one, he would control the supply lines in Tennessee. Number two, he could push further north into Cincinnati, Ohio. He could push east and join Robert E. Lee in Virginia. And he could rally Tennesseans and have them bolster his ranks, which he just desperately needed. This plan was certainly a long shot, but Hood did have at least one thing going for him. He had numbers. Nashville was only manned by roughly 10,000 federal soldiers, and Hood commanded roughly 33,000, which would eventually include Nathan Bedford Forrest's cavalry. If he could get to Nashville quickly... He could potentially take it back. Yes, but the key word is quickly. He yeah. had to get there fast. Hood formulated these plans, and he talked with General Beauregard on November 3rd in Florence, Alabama, to plan what is now known as Hood's Tennessee Campaign. The first obstacle in Hood's path was simply getting his army across the Tennessee River into the state of Tennessee. They were delayed multiple times by a combination of different things. They were lacking the necessary supplies, the ideal crossing locations were guarded by federal soldiers, and then the weather got really bad. That early fall, there was vicious wind and rain. Hood's army was not entirely across the river and moving north towards Nashville until November 21st. This gave plenty of time for the two federal corps, commanded by General John M. Schofield, to gather in Pulaski, Tennessee, where they could attempt to slow Hood's advance. And as the Army of Tennessee pushed forward, they had to not only contend with 
Schofield's federal forces, but also with the bitter cold wind and the freezing rain. But the men were still happy to be here. As they crossed the river, they gave out a hearty cheer to be in their home state and on the offensive. Soon, the two armies, led by two 33-year-old West Point classmates, were maneuvering around one another in Middle Tennessee. Schofield was trying to delay Hood, giving Nashville a chance to reinforce itself, and Hood was attempting to get around or divide the Federal forces from Nashville and then get there first. There are three villages that these two armies will go through on the way to Nashville, and connecting all three of these villages is a road called the Columbia Turnpike. These three villages are Columbia, Tennessee, Spring Hill, Tennessee, and Franklin, Tennessee. Columbia, the Federal Army arrives there first. Hood attempts to flank around them by crossing the Duck River east of town and continuing on to Spring Hill to check the advance of the Federal Army. This works very well, except when Hood gets there with the majority of his infantry, he finds that there's already a number of Federal soldiers in Spring Hill. It turned out that Schofield, just in case, had sent one of his divisions there on the off chance that the Confederates arrived first. Hood then issues the orders, orders that he feels are pretty clear, to block the Columbia Turnpike going into Spring Hill. He issues this order repeatedly and, in his view, very clearly all throughout the night. If he could do that, if he could get men on top of the road, then when the remainder of the Federal Army arrived in marching formation into Spring Hill in the middle of the night, they would not be able to defend themselves, and Hood could potentially be woken up the next morning accepting the surrender of Schofield. This was potentially the biggest moment of Hood's military career. He could end this all right here and continue on to Nashville without being bothered by Schofield's federal forces. But then Hood goes to sleep. He has been a little bit hands-off at this point. He gives the orders, but he fully expects his men to take the initiative and follow them. But they don't. So some of the Confederates got pretty close to the road. They put down their camps within a few hundred yards of where the Federal troops were marching. But the road was left open. But the road was left open. And in the middle of the night, the remainder of the Federal Army comes marching up this road and can see campfires off to their sides. Now, there is a little bit of fighting between the two armies, but not really enough to stop the Federal forces from marching through Spring Hill. In fact, one Federal soldier in the 72nd Illinois later wrote that had Hood placed a single Confederate division in a fortified position across the road at this point, it would have been the means of effectually checking the federal retreat and Don would have found our forces cut off from all hope of escape. The enemy would have outnumbered us two to one. Now I have to also add, the Northern Army maneuvers brilliantly. When they realize what they're doing, I mean, imagine you're walking up this road in the dark, you see campfires off to your side and you realize it's the enemy. Imagine how easily panic could set in. But rather than doing that, they march as quickly and as quietly as they can going through Spring Hill and continuing on to Franklin all night long. Just get all of those thousands of men to not... And horses. And horses. And cannons. And cannons. And uh, hundreds of wagons. So imagine when Hood wakes up the next morning. He would immediately realize that something was terribly wrong. There's no surrender. Right. He would have been fully prepared to be accepting the surrender of the Federal Army. And instead, he learns that they slipped right through his fingers in the middle of the night. So Hood of course, decides to have a heated discussion between him and a few of his high-ranking officers. 
and at that point in time, Hood decides to pursue the Federal Army up to Franklin. After arriving in Franklin in the early afternoon, Hood rode to the top of Winstead Hill, south of town. From there, he was able to observe the village, as well as the Federal defenses. Hood seeing roughly 15,000 Federal soldiers entrenched on the south half of Franklin, with additional advance lines and reserves, and around three dozen cannons spread across this line. It's on top of Winstead Hill that Hood seems to make up his mind. With only an aide present to ensure that he didn't fall from his horse, because Hood's, remember, Hood's strapped onto his horse at this point in time. He's one-legged. He's one-legged. Hood on top of the hill says, we will make the fight. And after conferencing with some of his officers and stating his belief that Franklin is the key to Nashville and Nashville is the key to independence, Hood ordered the attack. That day, November 30th, 1864, was nice for late fall. It was about 60 degrees and sunny. And at 4 p.m., 30 minutes before sunset, Hood ordered roughly 20,000 Confederate soldiers to march across open fields under heavy artillery fire into a fortified enemy defense. This was one of the largest frontal assaults of the entire war. This assault bore many similarities to Hood's assault at Gaines Mill, where he was commanded by Robert E. Lee. Around 40,000 men fought in what was some of the most intense combat of the war. The Confederates broke through the center of the federal defenses, and for a brief time, there was a nearly 200-yard gap in the center. The northern forces were able to plug the gap and retake their defenses. But the battle lasted roughly five hours in near total darkness. That night, after realizing their defenses had held, Schofield ordered the northern forces to fall back across the bridges they had spent all day fixing and continue to Nashville, leaving Franklin to the Confederates. The battle results in roughly 10,000 men killed, wounded, or captured, with nearly 7,000 of those being Confederates. Six Confederate generals lay dead or dying. One Confederate general wrote, The dead were piled up like stacks of wheat, or scattered like sheaves of grain. You could have walked all over the field upon dead bodies without stepping upon the ground. And one soldier noted that when Hood arrived that next morning and realized the extent of the devastation, he, for a considerable time, sat on his horse and wept like a child. The Army of Tennessee regrouped after the Battle of Franklin, spending December 1st burying the dead and caring for the wounded. Now, one of the things they do that day is they bring the bodies of four of the six Confederate generals who were killed to Carnton and laid them out on the back porch for their men to pay their respects. Sarah and I right now are recording this episode in the attic of Carnton. So you may hear the air conditioning running in the background, but we thought it'd be kind of fitting to record this episode in one of the field hospitals from this battle. On December 2nd, Hood had his officers press on towards Nashville. The army was in tatters, and with the loss of so many officers, the command structure was a mess. Remember, he started this campaign off with many of his officers being brand new. Now he's had six more generals killed or mortally wounded, plus many others taken out of combat. And that brief reprieve with good weather in the mix of this fall didn't last for very long. The weather grew much worse over the next few days, and the Confederates did not arrive in Nashville until mid-December. The Battle of Nashville was fought on December 15th and 16th, and Hood's men were thoroughly overwhelmed. They were forced to retreat through Middle Tennessee and remarked about how the battlefield in Franklin had deteriorated to the point where they could see body parts sticking up out of the ground. And Hood's men were chased 
through Tennessee and into Mississippi. By December 31st, the once mighty Army of Tennessee had dwindled down to 1,795 officers and 16,913 enlisted men present for duty. One man who wrote on January 15th, so shortly after they arrived in Mississippi, he wrote that Hood's actions in Tennessee had been a great campaign. For it was, though it failed. You talk of hardships. You should have been with us during the march into and out of Tennessee. The mud and water, the sleet and snow and ice and rain, the sleeping on the ground, the bare and bleeding feet of the men as they limped along, the weary march day by day. I couldn't imagine going through all of the emotions of marching on the offensive up through Tennessee, only to have the devastation in Franklin, then to lose again in Nashville, and then you have to go back in, in sort of the, de- the direction you came, and the weather is even worse, I can imagine how depressing of an experience this would have been, and exhausting. Oh yeah, for the soldiers, for Hood. I mean, in Tupelo, Hood offered his resignation to Jefferson Davis. Beauregard arrived in conference with Hood. He commented that Hood looked humiliated and utterly crushed. Beauregard chose not to relieve Hood of command himself, most likely assuming that Hood's resignation would be accepted after his crushing defeat in Tennessee. So a week later, Hood was relieved of command and replaced by General Joseph Johnston, the man he originally replaced. So I I, must feel like kind of rubbing salt in the wound at that point. Not only did you lose this campaign, but the guy that you took over for is now taking over for you. Well, Hood and Johnston don't really have the best relationship even in the best of times. Hood had led the Army of Tennessee for six months and was the only Army commander in the Confederacy to be appointed by the president, but never confirmed by Congress. But Hood, he gives a pretty moving farewell speech to his men. He says... Soldiers, at my request, I have this day been relieved from command of the army. In taking leave of you, accept my thanks for the patience which you have endured your hardships during the recent campaign. I am alone responsible for its conception and strove hard to do my duty in its execution. I urge upon you the importance of giving your entire support to the distinguished soldier who now assumes command and will look with deep interest on all your future operations and rejoice in your success. So imagine Hood right now. He's come back from this campaign. It was a devastating loss. He lost so many men, so many high-quality officers, and he now has to deal with the fact that he had been given this responsibility only to have this crushing defeat. And you see him kind of vacillating in different ways of how he deals with this. And really the things that he goes through are either accepting blame blaming others or saying, you know what? It really wasn't that big of a defeat anyway. You know, for a short time after the Battle of Franklin, he was saying this was actually a victory. We forced the enemy to retreat. So he goes through all these different emotions and how he's dealing with this. He's going through the the stages of grief. He traveled to Richmond, which if you remember from the previous podcast is where he's had fame before the whole Tennessee campaign in Atlanta. But this time around, he faces some pretty harsh criticism in the newspaper And while there, he wrote his official report for the time commanding the Army of Tennessee at the tail end of the Atlantic campaign. And he states, The results of a campaign do not always show how the general in command has discharged his duty. A great way of not blaming. The the results, how we did, doesn't always reflect on how the general performed. I think, and he leads off with that quote as well. It's a diplomatic way for saying... It's not my fault. Yes. (laughs) Don't blame me. He goes on to write how Johnston's leadership had ruined the army 
and set him up in a less than ideal situation. Towards the end of his report, he said, I was placed in command in the most trying of circumstances which can surround an officer. The army was enfeebled in number and in spirit by long retreat and by severe and apparently fruitless losses. It had dwindled day by day in partial engagements and skirmishes without an action that could properly be called a battle. What with this constant digging and retreating from Dalton to Atlanta, the spirit of the army was greatly impaired and a hope had almost left it. With this army, I immediately engaged the enemy and the tone constantly improved and hope returned. This is the best way you can phrase what you did. Like you suffered so many losses, but it's like, look, I tried. And because I tried, the men found hope in that. Oh yeah. I definitely, from the stuff I've read that Hood wrote and the speeches he gave, he definitely knows how to twist words. He likely believes this himself. I mean, I don't know that he's, I don't know that he's trying to be deceptive. I think he believed that the only thing for the army to do was to take aggressive action. And he's probably not lying about that. The army wasn't doing any good falling back like they were. No, you can only win if you're willing to fight. He then has an exchange with Jefferson Davis, which I think is really interesting. A short time after being relieved of command, Hood sent a letter to Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy and his friend, his good friend, stating, before leaving for Texas, so he's about to go and and embark on his new life post-Civil War in Texas. He says, before leaving for Texas, allow me to say that I more than appreciate all of your kindness to me. Please never allow anyone to cause you to think for one moment that I did not know that you were ever more than ready to assume all responsibility naturally belonging to you. I know, sir, you were in no way responsible for my operations whilst commanding the Army of Tennessee. Believe me, sir, ever your sincere friend. And then he ends this by saying, I am more content and satisfied with my own work whilst in command of the Army of Tennessee than all my military career in life. And on top of all of that, he's getting blamed for his campaign, the deaths of his soldiers, what little love life he had began to fell apart. Hood's relationship with Sally Preston kind of grows cold. By May of 1865, the engagement was called off due to the disapproval of Sally's family. In the book, John Bell Hood and the War for Southern Independence, the author, I just like the way he phrased this. He said, he who had faced the federal guns at Gaines Mill and Antietam had been driven away by Buck's parents and sister, (laughs) by his future in-laws. Buck, by the way, if you don't remember, is Sally Preston's nickname. On May 31st, 1865, after both the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of Tennessee had surrendered, Hood turned himself in to federal authorities in Natchez, Mississippi. His time as a soldier was over, and it was said that now his great sad eyes could laugh occasionally. There's a little book published called uh, The Life and Character of John Bell Hood, and I love this line that they say it says thus we perceive general hood was one of the first to enter the confederate cause and the last general to give up his sword so what does a guy like hood do when the war is over he had dedicated his whole life to being a soldier how do you begin to move on i guess you just live your life he makes his way to texas settles in san antonio for a short amount of time but then goes to new orleans louisiana to start a business And it's in Louisiana that he begins a career. First, as a cotton merchant, 
he started a short-lived firm called J.B. Hood and Company. But then he gets into the insurance brokerage career. Yeah, he becomes an insurance agent, actually, for the rest of his life. But he doesn't just do business. He gets married to Anne Marie Hennen in 1868. Yeah, it's interesting. He had. It seems like he was so enamored with Sally Preston. But within a couple of years, he seems to have moved on pretty quickly and marries this girl from New Orleans. Yeah, and they have 11 children. In 12 years. Yeah, in 12 years. They have one set of twins. No, I'm sorry. 11 kids in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, 11 kids in 10 years, one set of twins. One set of twins. He also then gets involved with veterans organizations. He goes to many reunions of the Texas Brigade. I think that's when really his legacy as a Texan really kicks in. I think that's why you see Fort Hood in Texas named after him all those years later. He associates himself with the Texas men so much. But he gets involved in fundraising. He raises funds for diseased and maimed soldiers and different fundraising organizations for those who were dealing with the aftermath of war. Enough so that kind of a funny story arose out of that. Yeah, his philanthropy kind of came back to bite him at one point in time. In New Orleans, there is a couple of newspaper articles warning people that there is a fake hood going around taking advantage of people looking to give money to the Robert E. Lee statue. One man says his experience. He was asked by a short, stocky man to give money towards the statue. And the short, stocky man claiming to be hood. Yes, he's claiming to be hood. He doesn't realize till he meets the real general hood that he is tall and only has one leg that he has been swindled. Right. Who's the short, stocky guy who I gave money to then? Um, <laughs> so that's pretty funny. In the summer of 1879, yellow fever struck the area along the Mississippi River. And one of the first cases in New Orleans was in a house diagonally across from where Hood and Anna Marie's house was. Now, his doctor does tell Hood to leave. He says, take your family away. You'll most likely get sick. But Hood decides to not leave. In fact, he supposedly tells his doctor that if we get sick, we're in your hands. His wife, Anna Marie, and his oldest daughter, Lydia, both succumb to the disease. And in fact, they both die within days of one another. Hood makes his last public appearance at Anna Marie's funeral. And then just a couple days later, he himself takes ill with yellow fever. Now, Hood does survive enough. Afterwards, he survives for a couple of days before he finally dies. So his friends, a couple of his friends visit him. He manages to get a final communion from the pastor of his church. Then in the early morning of August 30th, 1879, Hood dies. And he leaves behind 10 children. His 10 kids are now orphaned. Both of their parents are gone. And the Hood Relief Fund is organized to provide for his 10 kids. Hood's Texas Brigade says that they're going to take care of the children. They said they were going to buy them a house and raise the money to raise them. All, all 10 of these kids were born within 10 years of each other. So at this point, the youngest was one month old and the oldest were twins who were nine years old. So these are a bunch of young children. And in many ways, it seems like they come to embody for many people, all the orphans of the Civil War. Yeah, Hood's Texas Brigade never buys them that house. In fact, the children are all adopted by wealthy families across the North and the South, but they raise a lot of money. 
in one newspaper article for the relief fund, it stated, let every school in Georgia take a subscription today for general hoods. Children rally boys. Our babes must have the best in the land. We are poor, but our brats mustn't be ashamed to hold their heads up. I think this shows a lot of hoods reputation. You know, I think the people who raised the money for this wouldn't have done so if they didn't highly respect general hood. And Hood's book, Advance and Retreat, where he defends his actions during the Civil War, is published to raise money for his kids. After a few years, Hood's relief fund had raised over $20,000. That's a lot of money back then. Hood's story doesn't end there. In fact, his legacy continues. And what's interesting is over the next few decades, really not until the mid-20th century, Hood's reputation starts to sour. In fact, there are some pretty damning allegations against Hood the most notable of which was people started saying that the actions he took were because he was on laudanum and addicted to drugs. But we won't talk about that now. Our next podcast is going to be on Hood's evolving legacy throughout the years. We're going to be interviewing our boss, Eric Jacobson, historian and CEO of the Battle of Franklin Trust. But before we finish with Hood, I just wanted to quote from a song that some of the men made up as they were marching through Tennessee. It's Changing the lyrics to a song called The Yellow Rose of Texas. The, the song goes, My feet are torn and bloody. My heart is full of woe. I'm going back to Georgia to find my Uncle Joe. Referring to Joe Johnston. You may talk about your Beauregard. You may sing of Bobby Lee. But the gallant hood of Texas, he played hell in Tennessee. I think that's a good place to stop. I think so too. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you want to keep up with more of what we do, Follow us on social media. You can find Carter House and Carnton on Facebook. You can find the Battle of Franklin Trust on Instagram at BOFT1864. If you want to reach out to Sarah or myself, if you want to tell us a topic that we should cover in a future episode, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, doing these podcasts are a lot of fun, but sometimes it's hard. Since you don't see your audience reception, it's hard to know if people are actually enjoying them or not. Yes. Which I think they are. Hopefully, but if you hate it, you love it, let us know. One way or the other. We just want to hear from you. Uh, send an if you're email. indifferent, don't contact us. Right, yeah. <laughs> we don't want any middling opinions. We want love or hate only. But send us an email at just podcast at boft.org. If you love the show and want to support it, purchase one of our t-shirts. You can find them at store.boft.org. You can also find some books. I'll recommend, again, John Bell Hood and the War for Southern Independence. Yeah, most definitely. If you want to find out more about Hood, that's the book to read. But join us again in two weeks for the conclusion of Hood's story uh, with us talking about Hood's legacy. Thank you so much for listening.